It was 1957, and Britain was enjoying a major post-war boom in its industries and its economy. And the Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, told a Conservative Party rally in Bedfordshire, Indeed, let us be frank about it. Most of our people, and now some of you can finish the quote, most of our people have never had it so good. Recognize that? He went on, go around the country, go to the industrial towns, go to the farms. You will see a state of prosperity such as we never had in my lifetime, nor indeed in the history of this country. Never had it so good. The politicians of 8th century Israel were telling the people of Israel. They were living in boom times, Bronze Age style. Amos' ministry spans a period of several decades in the first half of the 700s BC. And apart from two verses addressed to the southern kingdom of Judah... All of the book, all of the prophecies are addressed to those who lived in that big northern kingdom, the majority of the land and territory of what we know as Israel. And times were good. There was peace, there was plenty, there was uh, an agricultural and a Bronze Age industrial boom. There was security of borders, and there were many people who were intent on getting rich quickly. There were lots of schemes, there were loads of money, individuals, there were second homes, the interior designers had very full diaries, Uh, the hair salons and nail salons were, were booming, people had a lot of spare cash and they were enjoying spending it. But of course where there's often a lot of wealth, there's a lot of injustice and there's a lot of poverty. And we saw the beginnings of that last week, as David taught us chapters 1 to 2. A lot of people who were missing out and who had been oppressed by the wealthy. It was a very disparate, unequal, and corrupt society. It was also a very religious society, as cultures with wealth often tend to be. A lot of people were were paying the shrines and the temples a lot of attention. Their reckoning was the more religion we can throw at God, the more we can keep him busy and out of our lives. And that's what religion does, doesn't it? False religion is I give God lots of things for him to be busy about and hopefully feel good about so he will leave me alone and not bother me. And that is what Amos sees going on. But you can have lots of religion and lots of wealth and inevitably moral standards go down. Again, we saw some of this last week. Amos is looking at a society which is sinking, where leaders are corrupt, where business practices are compromised, where legal systems are rigged, where sexual morality is not there anymore, not in any recognizable God-honoring form. And Amos speaks of God in a handful of places in these chapters, and particularly in chapter 3 and 4, as being like an animal, as being like a lion. In fact, he opens his prophecies in chapter 1 by saying 1 verse 2, the lion roars 
from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. As a shepherd, lions, because Amos was a shepherd, lions were, were, were the biggest prey, the biggest threat, the biggest problem. He'd have plenty of experience of trying to keep his flock safe from lions. Now his job as a prophet is to say to these Israelites, you are currently not safe at all. There is a lion who's stalking you in the word he's giving me. And Amos's responsibility in these chapters is to bring a secure conviction of the guilt of the Israelites before their God. And he does that by assembling witnesses who are utterly reliable to show the Israelites their sin. That's chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, he brings undeniable evidence of the guilt of God's people in God's sight. And if that sounds like we've got two pretty heavy and perhaps uh, gloomy and uncomfortable chapters in front of us, yeah, I think we have. I think we have, and I think that's fine. But there's also thrilling and surprising good news to make our heavy hearts soar with renewed confidence in the mercy of our God. So we haven't time to look at everything, but let's, let's give good justice to the two verses. And let's think firstly about chapter 3 as God's reliable witnesses. God's reliable witnesses as God moves amongst these people and shows them and testifies to their wrongdoings. The first witness is God himself. You see that in verse 3? Verse 1, beg your pardon, of chapter 3. This is the word the Lord has spoken to you. First, God brings himself as witness, and then he summons some other surprising witnesses. So he begins the chapter speaking to his people and speaking against his people. Hear the shock of verse 2. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will acquit you for all your sins. Is that what he says? He says the reverse, the opposite. I will punish you. I have chosen you. I have given you my love and my word and my favor. And when God chooses... He expects his chosen ones to respond with their love and their favor and their serious trust in and obedience to his word. But where his people scorn him, God must bring punishment. What chosen in the Bible never ever means is chosen to live in any old way you want. The Bible never says that. We are chosen to come to the Father's heart. We're chosen to find his mercy. We're chosen to submit gladly to his lordship. We're chosen for obedience. And where these people refuse to obey, they must expect punishment. 
So here come a series of questions. I think I counted seven of them from verses 3 to 6, which is the right number, seven, as we're thinking with the children this morning in the breakfast club. It's a number of perfection and completeness. So Amos has seven perfect questions, verses 3 to 7. He begins in the countryside. The images of verse 3, a couple of friends walking together. Then we're still in the countryside, verse 4, with the lion. And then verse 5, the bird and the trap and the snare. And the people might be thinking, there's Amos, country bumpkin, chewing on a piece of straw, talking about the countryside. But then he moves towards the streets and the pavements. Because in verse 6, there's a trumpet sounding. And any time city dwellers would hear a trumpet, they would be on red alert. This is like hearing the sirens going. There's danger coming. And then the last question in verse 6 is disaster coming. And in all of these questions which Amos sets up, he's expecting the answer, yes, yes. Yes, you can read through those verses again and see, ah, yes, of course. He means the people to nod in agreement. But how are they nodding in verse 6? He's woken them up, hasn't he? Don't you people tremble when disaster comes? And don't you have to recognize that God is behind all things? And his hand can move disasters even into the lives of his complacent people. A very inconvenient and terrifying truth. And when they start to complain at Amos to resent him, perhaps to harass him, well, what's his his charge? Verse 8, the lion has spoken. And Amos is surely saying, well, I will fear him. And the Sovereign Lord has spoken, and my job is to bring his word to you. The lion has roared. I've never heard a lion roaring in the open. One of my sons heard a wolf growling a few meters from him in the Swiss Alps in the middle of the night. And I once heard a Komodo dragon a few meters away, not in a zoo, in the wild, grunting. And they're one of, they're one of God's most terrifying, deadly creatures. But if God himself could growl or roar or be hungry for justice where he sees a corrupt people, How terrifying would that be? God's witness against his people. But here are some other most surprising witnesses. Look at verse 9. The word goes out to Ashdod. That's a key city of the Philistines. And then it goes down south to the Egyptians. And God says, you are my witnesses. You come together... You see the great unrest. You see the oppression of the people. And the the Israelites are thinking, Ashdod, they're a bunch of pagans. The Egyptians, God, you judged them. What have they got to say to us? And it's as if God is saying they've got everything to say. They have been seeing you, the supposedly chosen people of God, for hundreds of years. 
living like pagans, treating God with contempt. They do not know how to do right, is God's testimony over his people, Israel. The lion is roaring in judgment against a corrupt people. And the lion is roaring out the judgment which will come, verse 11, an enemy will come to to pull you apart. Your strongholds and fortresses where you have protection, your hoarded wealth, they'll be ripped apart and you'll be stripped bare. Even the picture in verse 12 of mercy is a very uncomfortable one. You've got the image in verse 12 of, of, of bits of a sheep being snatched from a lion's mouth. And that seems strange to us. Look, if the, if the lion has got the sheep and there's only some bits to let the lion have the sheep and let's keep our fingers. But in the ancient culture, the shepherd had to prove that he hadn't just sold some sheep. He had to have proof that actually a lion had got them. So he's got to go up to the, this, this lion who is, who is crunching through the bones of a sheep and rip a bit off to take back to his boss's proof. So it's a kind of picture of salvation, but it's almost not a picture of salvation. Maybe God is saying a day is coming which is going to be so terrifying for the materially comfortable and lazy and corrupt and selfish and hard-hearted, where the small number of those who are saved will be like ragged bits of what was once God's flock. It's not comforting, but it's a tiny sign of mercy. And the powerful in society, verses 13 to the end of the chapter, they will not escape. Their religion won't save them, verse 14. Bethel was a great place of worship in the northern kingdom. And God says he will cut off the horns of the altar. The altar had these horns that went up towards heaven. And they were were things that that, that a a criminal or somebody who feared being tried in a court could, could hang on to. And plead mercy. God says, there's going to be no mercy. I will cut the horns off. You can't trust in your false religion. Nor can you retreat to your summer houses. I'll tear winter and summer houses down. And all that interior design you paid a fortune on will be destroyed and demolished. God is saying this nation is coming down. And I am in charge. And I bet when Amos said that, they thought, we've got one of those religious fundamentalists in. We've got one of those extremists. He must have some sort of chip on his shoulder because he doesn't have the wealth that we have. And he's this prophet of doom. And we'll hear him politely, but we don't really believe a word of it. He'll get tired. Nobody who lives in a powerful regime ever thinks the end of that regime will come. But the end of all regimes and all injustice will come, sometimes very quickly. I used to know a guy called Rob. And he was living in Berlin in 1989. 
1989, many of us here weren't alive in 89. It was a great year. The music was good. And we had no smartphones or internet, and that was, that was brilliant. But Rob was in Berlin in 1989, in November of 1989. And, and I remember seeing a picture of him standing on the Berlin Wall, stooping down with a very little hammer, chipping off bits of the wall. Because that collapse of the wall was a great symbol of the collapse of the Soviet Union, which nobody thought would ever happen, least of all those within it. So conditioned and brainwashed were they to say that, to believe that the Soviet Union and its ideology would conquer the world. No nation... No empire, no ideology will ever conquer the world. It it might do for some decades or centuries. The Soviet Union has fallen. Secularism will one day crumble. Capitalism will vanish. The nations one day will be no more. Sumeria was overrun and destroyed by the Assyrians not long after Amos' ministry. Nobody saw it coming. Nobody escaped. The lion roared and his word would come to pass. Only the kingdom of God stands forever. We need to make very sure we are part of God's kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ that's chapter 3 the witnesses are utterly reliable and chapter 4 the evidence is undeniable Amos starts really quite seemingly rudely he addresses the women who live in a nice part of Samaria, Mount Samaria. That's a very, very expensive postcode. And he addresses them as the cows of Bashan. Now, the Hebrew experts have wanted to, they've wondered if quite what or who Amos is talking about. But Amos makes it quite clear. He's saying, you women, you're like cows. The cows of Bashan were very well-bred. They were high quality. They had a very good gene stock. And he's saying, you're like, you're well-bred, you're powerful, Maybe big boned, I'm not sure. But look what you do. You oppress the needy and crush them. You oppress the poor, you crush the needy. You laze around, texting through a continual drinks order to your husbands. And he's saying, you can't hide behind your husbands or your, your gated communities or your wealth. There is a day you'll get off those couches, God says, verse 2, and be taken away with hooks. That means hooks through your noses, that painful, humiliating way of prisoners being carted off into exile and worse. You will be cast out. And look at verses 4 to 5. Your religion, it's too late for that. You're very religious, it cannot save you. Amos is goading them. Go on then, go to Bethel. Go to Bethel. Go to Gilgal, another big religious center. Bring your daily sacrifices, your three yearly tithes, your thank offerings, and those free will offerings you boast about. 
Go and be really religious, in other words, Amos is saying. But he knows it's too late for religion. And actually, there never was a time for false religion, which is trying to manipulate God. It's not sincere worship, and it's not acceptable worship. It's a lesson every prophet gives to his people in every century in the Old Testament. That God despises worship from a proud and an insincere heart. He always did. He always does. He always will. Crush the poor and lift your voice to God. Lose your life in a haze of food and drink and bodily pleasures. And then bring your offerings to God and think he's going to accept and be pleased by this. That is a car crash of a life. Worship is the climax of a life well lived. But these people have made it a smokescreen for a corrupt selfishness. And religious people can be the most corrupt and selfish of all people. So the word of God today makes us search our hearts. Are we hiding from God behind our activity and our front, our appearance? Or do we gather out of pure hearts that we're straining to keep the covenant with God? Through Jesus. Things get even worse, even less comfortable as God brings more evidence of how he has worked amongst his people and still been defied and rejected by them. This is this awful list of evidence of what God has done and what the people have or haven't done, which is verse 6. Right through to verse 11. Where God is saying, I have moved among you and I have dealt with you to bring you back to me. Not by giving you all you've wanted, but by sometimes withholding what you've needed. Let's just look at a few references. Verse 6, empty stomachs and lack of bread. Verse 7, withholding rain. At a critical time, which the harvest, future harvest needed. Withholding water, verse 8. Blighting, verse 9, your gardens and vineyards. Same verse, devouring your precious fig and olive trees with locusts. It gets worse. Verse 10, sending Egyptian plagues, killing some of the best and brightest, the future of your society or young men. And verse 11, overthrowing some of you just like Sodom and Gomorrah. God is saying, I made your lives horrible. Amos is clearly referring to particular situations and events which we, we struggle to, to, to match them historically. But Amos knew what he was talking about. The people knew as well. And he's saying, look at your lives. Look at what's gone wrong and what is going wrong. And ask yourselves, could it be that God is having dealings with you? But you refuse to have dealings with him. And five times 
in those verses, the Lord declares, you have not returned to me. Life has been tough, God says, because I made it tough, and you didn't bow down and confess your sin and beg for mercy. And isn't that like our lives? Now, we need to be very careful at this point as Christians. Because it's easy for us to look at our lives and we suffer and say, oh, God is punishing me. God has removed his love from me. God no longer cares for me. We can't say that as Christians. God's love is unbreakable in Jesus. We may go through some awful things. The things we think will never happen to us. Never happen in our families. The stuff we read about or see on on our news feed. And it comes to us. God knows how to put a hole in our finances. Or give us unbearable health scares or difficulties. Or bring tragedies or dramas amongst our loved ones. We discover that life is horribly fragile. But then we have to take hold of all the promises of God and say, no, he loves me. He always has in Christ and he always will. Nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's just Bible promise. But when life is hard, we do humble ourselves before God. We we beg for strength to believe, strength to follow, and strength to worship. But those hard times do teach us our hearts, don't they? And they should wean us off our self-reliance and throw us again into Jesus' loving arms and humble us before the wisdom of his purposes and not ours. Let's make sure our hard times are those times in which we can say, Lord, by your grace, gosh, I came back to you. Now I discovered that although my life felt blighted, your love is so good. You were there every moment in those hard times. But for those who won't, then and now, verse 12 is true. Prepare to meet your God. Not the God who's running to you as you turn, but the God who stands to judge you. For your hard heart, the God who is, verse 13, creator. And the one who reveals his mind and plans to humanity. The one in charge of the day and the night of good and evil. The one from him, there's no hiding. He treads the high places of the earth. The lion, whose name is the Lord God Almighty. Now we've got a couple of minutes and we need to do some thinking before we go to the table. So that we get the message of bread and wine. And so that we read these chapters as God wants us to read them in the light of Jesus Christ. So let's take a little bit of time before we close and think, what are the lessons about Jesus which I need this morning? Which come through in these two chapters of Amos, Amos 3 and 4. Firstly, Jesus is the prophet. As Amos was a prophet then, an outsider, called to serve this culture, 
Jesus is the great prophet, the great outsider who comes from outside our world. Amos was just a southerner called to work in the north, the northern kingdom. Jesus is the son of God sent to be the prophet from heaven. The outsider who, like Amos, warns and reasons that God is not distant, that God is not unconcerned about sin, but who cares deeply about justice and longs to gather a broken-hearted but trusting people to himself. And as Amos was the shepherd sent to this wayward flock, would you tell me, who's the great shepherd sent to gather wayward sheep, wandering sheep who had gone astray? Jesus. Amos speaks the word he hears from God and calls his hearers to fear God. Amos brings the evidence of their sins to their hearts and minds. Jesus comes with hard words to us, saying that we've sinned. We have spurned God's goodness. We've despised his mercy, but there is goodness and mercy. There is a good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. There is a good shepherd who, though he has all the undeniable evidence against us and about us, though he is the perfect witness to how we have squandered God's mercy and goodness, He goes into the courtroom. He becomes the accused. He says, I'll take that evidence and I will be witness against myself. And I will die on a cross. And I will take, Father, your perfect justice against the sins of all who trust in me, those wayward, materialistic, thankless sheep. I will pay for them. I will save them. They shall be mine. And so if you want to hear God's word this morning and receive God's word, you say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Because I see all of these sins in my life. And I see all of this grace in Jesus. And I'm taking grace. And I'm celebrating your love in him. And as I walk with him shepherding me through life, my hard life, my struggling life, my weak faith, he is with me. And he'll never leave me. And never forsake me. So, we need to worship. And we need to trust. Let's pray together. Loving Lord Jesus Christ, great shepherd of your sheep, the one who came for us, declared God's word, and as God's incarnate word, took our sin and its punishment at the cross. We worship you. We need you. We bring our thankfulness to see our sins heaped upon you and we claim from your nail-pierced hand this morning once more everlasting righteousness 
and eternal life. Glory be. Receive our praise. Amen.